Today, you will hear the views and ideas of our podcast guests. We're eager to showcase their expertise and provide a platform for their views, but they may not always reflect or align with the views of the Positive Effect or the MAP Center for Urban Health Solutions. Welcome to Podcast. We are created by and for people living with HIV. On each episode, we explore what it means to be Paws. We challenge the status quo and we share stories that matter to us. I'm James Watson, and I'm HIV positive. If you're living with HIV, listen up. People will often look at their lives and go, oh, I've been positive almost as long as I've been negative. And you don't get to say that, that I've been positive since day one. Yeah. I, I never had a choice in this issue. I, was, I arrived in the world living with HIV. And, and you are a long-term survivor and a long-term thriver. And you are a role model and you are the bomb. We have a great show for you. This is Pausecast. Each year, June 5th is set aside to celebrate long-term survivors of HIV. And they're heroes to me. I can't put it any other way. And on today's Pausecast, we're going to hear about their unique journeys, their challenges, triumphs, and lessons learned along the way. And I'm going to do something a little bit different for this episode. I'll introduce and wrap up the show, but I'm not going to take the mic on this one. Instead, I'm going to sit back and listen along with you to a conversation between generations of thriving long-term survivors. They have vastly different journeys and experiences, but lots of similarities, and I want to know more. Adrian Betts, the executive director of the AIDS Committee of Durham Region, is in his 50s and has been working in the HIV sector in Ontario since 1989. And Ashley Murphy is an actor and has been an outspoken advocate for HIV and AIDS since the age of 10. At 23 years old, Ashley has been living with HIV since birth. Both long-term survivors and both inspirational leaders. Let's listen in. Hey, Ash, how are you? Hey, I am doing pretty well this Monday morning. How are you? I'm great. This is an exciting opportunity. I'm really looking forward to today. It is. I feel like we haven't really gotten the chance to, because of COVID and everything, just sit down and chat, even though, you know, we're kind of far away. We're still sitting down. We're chatting. We have our coffee. We do. I'm happy about that. Um, so in James's preamble, he, he referenced us as heroes. Do you think of yourself as a hero? I mean, I've kind of struggled with that for a very long time, I want to say. Because the first time someone ever called me their hero, and I put that in quotations just because I'm like, that's a big word. That's a really big word. And I don't know if I have the shoes to, to fill it, but the first time someone told me that, I was 12, I think. 11 or 12, and I had just stopped speaking. I'd gone off on stage. Someone came up to me and hugged me, and they're like, Ashley, you are my hero. I was like, what does that mean? What does that mean to be someone's hero? You know what I mean? Because I had just been talking about people who inspired me, like, you know, like my mom or Martin Luther King or Gandhi, all these people I grew up learning about and loving. I don't think I'd consider myself a hero when I when I think of those kind of people and what they did. And I'm like, my, I, I, I don't even come close. But what what about you? What what? Do you, how do you feel? It's similar for me. I, I, the word hero makes me actually a little uncomfortable. I mean, the fact that I'm still alive doesn't make me a hero. Um, yeah. I like to think that I do good in people's lives, but I don't do it for applause or for or for recognition it's just 
part of what I do. And, and I'm glad to be alive. Like, I'm so glad to be alive because I was not supposed to be. I was supposed to die um, many years ago. And, and this, I just don't think it makes me a hero, which is interesting. I, just, I mean, I appreciate um, what James was saying in, in, in that uh, acknowledging the fact that people who are long-term survivors, you know, we have a story to tell and we have value and we have a narrative that's unique to us in that we've been living so long with HIV. We lived through the dark ages when, you know, um, everyone thought it was an absolute death sentence and, and we were social pariahs and, and to today where it's, you know, a chronic manageable condition where, you know, things like you, you exist. Or, and um, so, yeah, I, I get how, how our journey can be inspirational, but I never th sort of think of myself as a hero, but, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess it kind of comes with being able to speak out and being outspoken about it. Just because yeah. there, when you think about it, like there are people who are outspoken, but there are also a lot of people who aren't and can't because of the stigma that they face. And yes. I'd say we're very lucky. Yeah, I certainly have a big mouth. I'm, I'm always <laughs> my mouth open, yapping about something. So speaking of this journey, what's it been like? I mean, for me, being diagnosed in the early days of the, of the pandemic, uh, when it was all about fear and angst and anxiety, um, where we really were treated differently. I mean, it was not uncommon, you know, for me to go to four funerals a week or more. People, my friends, were just dropping left, right, and center. It was horrible. And the whole time, um, people sort of, they blamed us. Like, it was our fault and we had done something wrong to deserve our HIV. And it was a, a time of incredible fear and anxiety. And I'm so happy I've, I've lived beyond that part of it. But I think that part of it made me who I am. I mean, I, I was an actor like you before HIV. And the fact that I'm not shy is what got me into AIDS work. Uh, we needed money. And so I said, well, I'll ask. And so I became a fundraiser, just literally asking anybody for money um, to help support people living with HIV. And back then, I mean, there weren't job descriptions. You weren't like a fundraiser or the executive director or the counselor. You were all of those things. Everyone did everything all the time. It was a real different time of coming together for community. You know, I think without the queer community and, and hemophiliacs and uh, Haitians, the 4-H club, right, we were called, homos, Haitians, and hemos, uh, coming together to really sort of, of create the infrastructure that, that became the AIDS movement, I think, uh, you know, a lot would be different. But your experience is radically different than mine. I mean, you were a baby. Mm -hmm. I, I, I mean, I can't even imagine, like, growing up, obviously, I was aware of, you know, the 80s pandemic, epidemic, what all that stuff that happened. And growing up as a kid with HIV, it truly scared me. But it also made me realize at a young age how thankful I was. It's kind of weird, thankful to say that that had happened. But at the same time, it, it's kind of weird because I, I wasn't there at all. The only thing I know is things that I have seen in either, like, documentaries, history books, textbooks, like, stuff like that. Because I... I was born at the end of the 90s in 1998 at a time where the first antiretroviral had become accessible in Canada in 1996. I'm very lucky to have been born at the time I was because although there wasn't a lot of access to medication, there's still some that when the doctors did find out that I had HIV, you know, they were able to give me medication right from the get-go. And so I was always insured knowing that I was always going to have medication. Even as a baby, I obviously didn't know how important it was, but then I obviously learned growing up like how important these medications really are. Yes. Though, I tell you, over the years, there have been some rotten ones. 
I'd love to hear about some of your journeys. Like what have, what have been some of the medications that have been just gone awful? Cause we all, we all have those. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Kalitra would be the one that, 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 that did me in the most. It was a bright orange capsule that literally was basically all it did was give you diarrhea, like explosive, nasty, horrible diarrhea. And I was at this point when I was taking Kalitra, I was living in Port Perry, working in Hamilton at the AIDS network there. Uh, and the drive was more than two hours on the 407. And so I knew where every single toilet was between <laughs> between my house and my office. And literally, I had to pull over on the side of the road a couple of times. It was mortifyingly embarrassing. Um, but it was just one of the side effects. And then other things, of course, you know, some meds, even today, some of the meds I take, I, I can't eat first thing in the morning. If I do, then I'll want to puke or, or feel nauseous. And because I... I I lived with, with HIV a long time and I have, I didn't go on meds immediately because I was resistant to it because most of my friends who went on meds had died. So I, I resisted going on meds as long as I could. Um, and so I, I have a bunch of comorbidities. So I take other meds for that too. So back in the early days, you were taking 16 pills a day, four times a day for HIV. But now here I am at 54 and I'm taking 16 pills a day, four times a day for HIV and for diabetes and for HAS and for all the different comorbidities I'm living with. <laughs> there are parallels between then and now for me about, about medications. Uh, ultimately, I'm grateful. I mean, they all saved my life. And I'm aware of that. And I'm aware that I, I waited too long to go on meds. Um, and that's why I have so many comorbidities that I have today is because I just didn't trust the meds uh, soon enough, which is you know kind of fascinating in hindsight because now I, I spend all my time connecting other people to meds. They're making sure they're in the care system and that they're getting treatment. So it's kind of funny. Um, what was your worst meds? Do you remember any? I mean, there's definitely stories that my mom told me about um, Ritonavir. I, I took it when I was a baby and it was given to me in a bottle. And my mom would tell me that every time I drank it, tears would just be running down my face. And when she says hot, she said like one time she tried like a little like dab of it. She was just like, because she saw me crying. She was like, why is, why is she crying? Like, why is it that bad? And then she like dabbed her finger. She tasted it and she said it tasted like kerosene. I mean, I don't remember this medication at all, but maybe that's why I don't like really hot food now. <laughs> I'm really just anytime anything spicy touches the tip of my tongue, I'm outie. Like I, I cannot do it. But I'd say the hardest medication I, I've been on, I don't even remember what it was called at this point. But when I, I was little, when I was five, I want to say, I only weighed 23 pounds. Wow. I, I've always been so small, so underweight, but especially as a child. And so the doc, and I couldn't swallow my pills orally. Like I didn't have it in me. I just couldn't. They were disgusting. I had a hard time, you know, and I was a child. Most children don't know how to take medication anyway. I just had to learn the hard way. And so at five, the doctors gave me what was called like a gastrointestinal tube. And so every single night before I went to bed, my medicine was fed through this tube and would come down. But also throughout the day, I'd get nourishments like inshores and stuff like that also put down there in order to, you know, build, build me up, you know, get some, get some meat on my bones. And so I had that G-tube from ages five to nine. And when wow. I say, like, I, I would say my pain tolerance is quite low <laughs> and that's probably the reason why like every single month with this uh, tube it had to be changed every month or else it might explode and then that would cause me even more yeah there's like a little balloon inside and if I got too full it could do that and so every single month I had to get it removed and a new one put back in 
But the thing was, living in Ajax and being so far from Toronto, we couldn't just make that trip all the time. But we were already going so much for doctor's appointments and everything, like, etc. It just would have been more. So every single month, I know this is going to sound kind of gross, a little morning, but my mom, she would lay me out on the, on the counter and she'd remove the tube with her hands and a towel. Wow. And this was like right before school too. So like, she's like packing lunches, doing all that stuff. And like beforehand, like before you leave to go to like kindergarten, actually, let me fix your tube. But when I say like, this is probably the worst pain I've ever experienced. Cause she would just take, she would just take it out. And I mean, obviously there's no other way to do it, but I was always squirming. It, it was very painful. Wow. And as so, soon as I actually got it taken out, the do- we got it taken out of the doctors. And it was like a three, two, one out. And then I looked at my mom and I was like, we could have done this for five years. I was like, I didn't have to. Like, <laughs> I was kicking and screaming on the counter for minutes on end because of that. But I'd say like that's probably the, wor- like, the worst thing that's happened just because of the pain. The pain was really bad. But I mean, as soon as I got that tube out, I've been able to take medication perfectly. Wow. I gotta say, if this is a competition, you win. That was that's a crazy story, and and to be that young and to have that su- such an invasive form of medication. I mean, my goodness, oh, I, I mean, hated it. Wow. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it was either like my older si- like my older brother or my older sister. They'd hold my hand because I was like screaming, but they'd have to like look away too. They're like, "Oh, good, you're okay, Ashley," you know. But like, they didn't actually want to look at like my stomach or anything, just because it was weird. I mean, I understand. I feel like I would have been the same in their in their shoes. So when did you understand that, that you knew you were positive, what that meant? Or like, I mean, you, you had all these things happening and you were five. I mean, did you know you had HIV at five? I mean, I think, no, which is funny because I didn't even realize why this was really going on. I just kind of knew that I had medications to take and that I'd go to doctor's appointments every couple of months. And I, I thought that was normal. I thought that, you know, every single kid in my class went to the doctors every couple of months. But... Also, going to the doctor was a luxury for me because I got to miss school. (laughs) So I didn't really, honestly, I didn't really mind as a kid. So I didn't really think about it. I just knew that like, okay, I'm going to go to the doctors. I'm going to get my blood taken. I'm going to talk to some doctors and then I'm going to go get Burger King. Sweet. Yeah. I mean, as a kid, (laughs) that's all you, that's all you really look forward to, right? Going to sick kids was such a journey for me. Driving downtown was fun. Cool. Um, So, but when, when did you understand that um, your diagnosis. How old? I, I I was seven. That's when my parents sat me down. They're like, you know, the reason why you go to all these doctors' appointments, the reason why you take all these medications, is because you have a virus called HIV. And again, being so little, being seven, not understanding what HIV it is is at all. I just brushed it off. And I was like, okay, wow. what's for dinner, mom? <laughs> like, <it> very, <laughs> it just completely went over my head. And I mean, I was short, so it's, it's easy for that to happen. But <laughs> I just didn't realize. But then that, that led to me asking a lot of questions. I became very inquisitive very quickly. You know, A plus B, like, what, what's, what's the outcome? Like, what, what happens? And not really knowing too much, which is, that's why I asked, because I, I didn't know anything. You have to understand for someone like me, that's a real trip to just imagine. Um, and I was working in HIV and then seroconverted while working in HIV. So I knew everything. I knew how to protect myself. I knew how to, how to, uh, how to manage the disease and what the right things to do were. But still, when I was diagnosed, 
my partner at the time was really, really sick and, and the docs didn't know what was wrong. And, and it was pretty clear to me that, that you know, um, he had very clear indications that he might be HIV positive. And so we, we did the tests and we found out our status. Um, and it was, it was sort of the whole bottom of my stomach dropped out. I think anyone who's, who's had that diagnosis back then that know that feeling is like, oh my God, how much time do I have? Uh, and so the idea of, of tackling that at such a young age, even though you said you, you don't really understand the idea of, of, of being faced with that impactful statement that you have this disease, it's tough to imagine. Um, I think I understand now why maybe people call you a hero um, in that uh, you've sort of just gone on, got on with your life as, as, you know, this is just another part of me and onward we go. Yeah, I, I really don't know. Like a lot of people have asked me where that comes from. I don't even know if it really came from me as so much my parents, because they always, I, I grew up with a family, you, you know, you've, you've met a bunch of my siblings, uh-huh. second youngest of 10 kids. <laughs> I was exposed to a lot as a kid, but I was exposed to a lot of different atmospheres and environments. Like all of my siblings have either some sort of physical or mental disability that, you know, prohibits them from living like a completely 100% prosperous life. Like my brother's in a wheelchair and will always be in a wheelchair, but Despite that, he is one of the funniest guys I've ever met. Like my brother, Patrick, I always like say to people and they are so surprised when I say that. They're like, how can be that funny? Like, because like the doctors, you know, when he was first born, too, it was the same thing. Like didn't have very much to live, didn't think he was going to have a prosperous life. But here he is. And I feel like I because I was one of the youngest in my family for a very long time, I grew up with my siblings and seeing them kind of overcome their battles which were completely different from mine, mind you, but still kind of like seeing that and seeing like where they get their strength from. I don't know if that was something inherent within me, but just seeing my siblings kind of, you know, going through their own struggles and coming out on the other side, it definitely was empowering to kind of be like, you know, maybe it wouldn't be so difficult to speak, but it wasn't something that ever just kind of like, oh, maybe one day I'd love to speak and talk. But, you know, like you said, you got your start out in acting and I, from the age of four, I wanted to be an actress. So maybe it was that innate need to want to be able, like you said, like you were really good with speaking to people. I didn't realize that at a young age until I started speaking on a panel and I was speaking with a whole bunch of other youth. And then people would come up to me and they'd say, you did an amazing job. And at 10 years old, that doesn't really mean too much because I'm like, really? Like all I was doing was sharing my story and that's it. Like it goes back to that hero thing that we're talking about. But that's just it. Sharing your story is one of the one of the most empowering things you can do as a person living with HIV. Because it's not just sharing your story; it's owning your truth and and coming out publicly as someone living with HIV, where you're no longer in control of that of that knowledge, right? Because it's out there in the internet, or it's out there in a newspaper, or wherever, right? It requires a, a degree of bravery and a degree of trust in yourself that you know whatever happens, you can handle it. I mean, I think what you said about about your siblings and how basically it's like everyone has a challenge in life and this is mine and i love that that point blank point of view i'm one of eight right uh, irish family um yeah, my family it, it's it's uh you know eat fast or you don't get seconds like there's no there's no molly yes and so i think it's it's, it's the similar thing in that uh, just get on with it right get on with it so you, you you mentioned that you started speaking at age four tell us a little bit about that experience because you have been uh, an international spokesperson at this point around HIV issues, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I said that like at age of four, I wanted to definitely pursue something in the arts. 
I knew that I wanted to be in front of people no matter like what that looked like. But at four years old, I didn't think that in six years I'd be on stage speaking to people. Like I did not think that was going to be the route I was going. It really just started happening. And I, again, like I just gained all my strength. I don't know if it like it was from the inside because I don't remember doing a lot of internal reflection as a kid. But again, you're, you're a kid. You don't really like, think about it. It was mostly from the kids that I had grown up with, not only my siblings, but the year I found out I was HIV positive, I started going to a camp for kids with who are either infected or affected by HIV. And so I went to this camp from ages seven to 15. And at this camp, you learned that in being HIV positive was it was normal there. You know, it wasn't a secret. I mean, obviously, there are some people who didn't want to share and didn't say anything, but it really just takes that. And I feel like you've seen this at different conferences we've been at. It really just takes one conversation, one person to start speaking and then the ball rolls. Yeah. Because there was just so many times when we just like talked about being kids. But then there are times and, you know, we had a small conversation about medicine or like one person would and it would just kind of trickle and then we'd share stories. And then that's when I realized the importance and the power and like sharing your story. It's cool. I gotta ask you, when you're in a room full of only HIV positive people, how does that make you feel? Because for me, when I'm in a room full of PHAs, I know that everybody in that room understands me and they understand some of that weird stuff that we go through as people living with HIV. Some of the stigma, the stuff around disclosure, the stuff around anxiety, around, around health issues, around dealing with nasty medications, all those different things. And so when I'm with a room full of, of PHAs, it's, it's a place where I truly feel I can just relax. Mm-hmm. I feel at home. I feel at home, yeah. Which like kind of sounds weird, but again, from a very young age, as soon as I found out, I was basically exposed to this whole world. And I learned about a lot of different people, a lot of different stories and where they came from. And I, I just met a lot of people who, you know, when it came down to it, they were too scared to really talk about it on a grand level. Because the thing was, when I when I started speaking, I only started speaking because the older kids in the clinic did. And I tagged along as kind of like their, their like younger sister. I was always one of the younger ones. And so I was just like, you know, doing what the big kids did. I didn't really like see it as much. But then as the years started to progress and uh, the doctors wanted us to kind of like seek more and, and at different things, not just, you know, in front of doctors and nurses, they wanted like, hey, can we get your photo? Can we get your name? Can we like this and that? Like they just kept like the request just kept coming in and kids just like respectfully declined because, you know, like I can share my story, but just don't put my name out there anywhere. And it's because of the stigma. It's because of the fear that it's going to get back to them and that they have to live in fear for who they are. But for me, I just always was like, yeah, you can put my name, you can put my face, you can do anything. Like, I just didn't care. And I don't know why I just didn't care. I just didn't. I was okay with my truth, I guess, Mm -hmm. even at a really young age, just because I, again, I just wanted to to speak. I just wanted to be in front of people. And it really just happened that way. Because, I mean, at that time, I was... um, at 11 years old, I, because I still keep in touch with my birth family, I was performing in bars with my birth father, singing like Beatles tunes. But when I wasn't doing that, I was, you know, talking and giving conference, like speeches and conferences and stuff. So it's very, it was two different worlds, but still trying to remain a kid all at once, which was like very different from your experience because you you found out as an adult. How, how was that? Um... Like I said, I've been working in HIV, so I had more knowledge than most people. So it wasn't as, as jarring as that. What was hard was then telling people 
disclosure is always tricky. Um, but when you're first diagnosed, was, when I was first diagnosed, I'll speak for myself, when I was first diagnosed, the idea of having to tell our families was just awful because they, their single biggest anxiety for us as, as a young gay man at that time was that we might be at risk for HIV. So letting them know that, yeah, you know, we got it. It was a double whammy because it's not just outing yourself, it's now shoving them back into a closet uh, of they have to now deal with their feelings and anxiety and stress. Because you know you're going to have to put on this sort of coat of armor to protect yourself because you're going to need to support them and walk them through that whole thing about understanding how the virus works and how treatment works and how you're going to live your life and so forth. So it was a very sort of surreal experience. For the longest time, I didn't deal with my diagnosis because my partner was sick. And then coming out to our families, that was awful. I told my sister first. I, I always tell my older sister, Caroline, everything first. I, I came out to her first. Uh, I told her about my HIV status. She's the first one who knew. And I don't know why I burden her with my crap, but I do. But she's, I think she's like the test subject. She's the person who always stood up for me when I was a kid. She used to stand up to the kids who tried to beat me up at school. She'd be the one like, away from my kid brother, I'll kick your ass. Uh, yeah. And so I think I go to her as a, as a place of safety. Um, and so to testing it out with Caroline first and then telling my family was just it's hard. It was really, really hard um, because there was a sense of, of disappointment, like I'd done something, I disappointed them or let them down. Or now I, I had caused them to worry about me because of, of something I'd done. But then I was realizing it took me a little while to actually finally process my own feelings about being diagnosed, about what that meant for me. and. Ironically, it gave me agency. I was like, you know, you do not get stuck in this place of grief and worry. It's it's a fact. It's happened. Get on with your life. And you have stuff to do. And don't let this beat you. And I haven't. I mean, ultimately, still here, still kicking, right? And and, and uh, I've had a good life, a fun life. I've done lots of crazy things. I've traveled the world. I've, I've I raised horses for a while. I've, I did things that I was told I wouldn't be able to do. And... Well, not every day has been great. I've been sick several times with some pretty serious issues. I've had an embolism. That was horrible. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's the trade-off has been worth it. I, I often think now, who would I be if I wasn't HP positive? Would I still be an actor? I don't know. Would I know who I am? Would I have the same confidence that I have today? Mm-hmm. Um, because it's been really clear to me. Um, this will get a bit weird on you. I apologize. But... I'm a person of, of a degree of faith in, in that I identify as a Quaker and, and uh, I believe that, that living your best life is by through serving others, right? And so my diagnosis gave me a clear path into how to serve other people, how to help other people. And so that's been a big part of, of why I do what I do. And I have a big mouth, like I said, and have no, I'm not shy and have, don't have stage fright. So I just get up there and just wing it. And so I became a very vocal proponent you know i it was funny i i uh <laughs> i've been arrested uh, a couple of times for for aids demonstrations and and uh yeah it's been it's been a wacky wacky time but it was it was definitely an adjustment learning my status and then coming to terms with it and then embracing it and so that was it so i, I want to ask before we get too lost in this conversation though i want to ask you the big question yes dating I want to talk about dating. <laughs> dating is the big question. I honestly, I found that in a lot of cases, the most open people about their status are the most like weary in the relationship life. 
And I mean, I don't know if that's my own personal experience. People can see me as the most like outspoken, you know, confident person, which like I, I can be. We all can be that. But at the same time, as soon as it comes to telling a boy, forget about it. I shrivel up and I turn into a very like insecure little girl, which I don't know. I guess like, you know, that's just something I have to work on. I mean, it it it, it used to be worse in high school. It definitely used to be worse. Like there, there were definitely some times when like I'd want to disclose to someone and then I just run off. I'd be like, oh, my bus is here. And I, and I would do stuff like that. And honestly, thinking back to it, like my 14 year old self, I can't even imagine doing stuff like that now because anyone, anytime anyone asks me, I'm just like, yeah. And like, I really don't care. It could be in person. It could be through text. Even if I don't like the outcome or if I, I don't think I'm going to like the outcome, I'm going to say it anyway. Cause what's the point in lying to them? Because mm. the one time that I did lie to someone, I, I lied about my status in grade nine. Cause there's one time I was, it was uh, after drama practice, obviously. Uh, and I was just hanging out with some of my friends. And then this one, this one of one girl from our drama cohort, she comes up to me and she randomly in front of people, it just goes, do you have HIV? And I, I still don't know why to this day she just randomly came out and asked it, but I guess she was curious. And I said, no. And then after that, I walked away and I cried. I, I felt really like beaten down that day. And I was like, I can't believe I did that. And then I went home that day and I told my mom that I had like told someone that I wasn't HIV positive, even though like, obviously like that's bullshit. She, she talked, she talked to me and she was like tomorrow or sometime in the next week, you're going to go up to that girl. You're going to talk to her and you're going to tell her the truth. And I did. And it was as simple as that. I mean, it was really hard. And I'm glad that my mom pushed me to do that because had I not, I don't think I would have been able to like kind of like overcome that. But in doing that, you know, she, she apologized to me and we have, we had like a good rapport for the rest of high school. So, you know, not, not, nothing bad came from it, but it was the initial, you know, being worried, you know, either, either like telling friends, telling people you're interested in. It's definitely hard. Mm -hmm. it, it, it comes with a lot of weight, but I mean, like you said, it's just you, as long as you're comfortable in yourself. I got news for you at 54. It doesn't get any easier. Um, I bet it doesn't. It, it's I'm like, like you, I'm comfortable in my skin and I will tell anyone and pause. It's challenging when you, when you meet someone and you think I like you and then you have to do that dance. You have to navigate. Do they know my status already? If they don't, when do I tell them? Do I tell them on the first date before we go on a date? Do I tell them, you know, after when we're about to get you know intimate, like when's the right time. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, I'm a chicken shit. And so what I do is I, I generally put it out there in my public profile. So if I'm on a dating app, it says, you know, plus sign after my name. People mm -hmm. the plus me, you know, that means I'm HP positive. My Facebook page, you can tell I'm, I'm positive. And my Instagram, you know, I work at the age committee and I mentioned being positive. And so if you connect with me through any sort of platform, you know. The problem is when it's real life, when you meet someone at a party or, or on the street or at a bar or anywhere, and then it's like, I like that guy or he likes me and like, I have to have the conversation. And, and the worst part is, is that even though <laughs> I'm a confident, arrogant, you know, sure of myself guy, that rejection still hurts, right? Sometimes mm -hmm. when someone looks at you and goes, you know, I, I get it, I understand, but I'm just not not ready to or not able to or whatever. And you're like, well, well you're lost. Because yeah. to, the irony, of course, today is that when it comes to sexual partners, we cannot pass the virus along if we're undetectable. 
cracks me up that people would rather have sex with people who don't know their status uh, than yeah. people who do and who are undetectable. I think that's whack. Because if anything, it's safer. Right. Because it's like, <laughs> we, we know what's going on. We're in control of what's going on. Yeah, exactly. And before it was you, I used to zero sort, which means I would only date people who are positive just to make mm -hmm. it easier. That way I wouldn't have to deal with rejection either. So I had lots of different tools over the years to try and navigate. See, that's, that's a very interesting like point that you put out there because I, for me, I also was in that for a little bit. Like as a, as a teenager, I thought it would just be easier to date people who were uh, HIV positive. But then I realized I don't want to date in the community. I want to date outside of the community. You know, I, I, I have my HIV, I have all that. But then I have like, I, I don't want to say like some normalcy, but something that's not HIV related. And I mean, the way my, my, now, my now boyfriend found out, he found out through a joke because I was making a joke and he thought that, you know, you know just, just, just making a joke. I don't even remember what the joke was at this point, but it was just a bunch of us. This was pre-COVID. I said it in front of like 15 other people because they all knew. All of mm -hmm. them knew, but my boyfriend at the time, that was the first day we'd ever met. And this was out of McDonald's, just out of McDonald's. And I just like said something out loud and then, you know, people heard it whatever some some people laugh some people go like that's weird whatever but it was it was really just such a weird place but he was so open about the idea and he researched a lot about hiv and aids like he obviously he asked me questions but he did a lot of research on his own time which education in a man that's hot especially if you know it's in relation to you you know what i mean and then it shows that they care yeah my last boyfriend was 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 negative and uh we dated for about a year and a half and, and uh he took it on himself to educate himself and to find out about prep and to find out about uh you was you and all that stuff and i thought it was for the first time where i wasn't the one helping someone along the journey they were helping themselves mm -hmm. and i was impressed by that and, and grateful for that because it was like okay so you're looking after yourself that's cool no, exactly. It's, it's, it's great to see people that like they're, they're taking this information and they're, they're taking it into account, but they're also, they're using this because not only is it going to like help us, but it's going to help them. And it just makes it better in any circumstance because like, I feel like you might find this. It's like, you don't always want to do the educating. No, no, God. I do that. I get paid to do that. I check this every day. <laughs> yeah, that's the same thing with me. I get I get paid to speak, but it's like I'm not, you know, I'm not gonna sit here and talk to my boyfriend and learn all uh, and like teach him about all the all the stuff. When he had questions and everything, I answered. But also at the same time, I was like, the the internet is a very great place. Uh, sometimes it's a little crazy though. <laughs> a little bit, but I mean, especially if there are specific like niche questions that people have, I'd say like. Either you talk to a doctor or talk to someone with HIV because I feel like if you try and go out to the to the interwebs to look for those like really like specific things, you're just either you're, you're just going to get false information. Agreed. So this is a difficult question. If you don't want to answer it, that's don't. But um, I wonder if you could share a low experience. I mean, I, I'll go first so you know what I'm talking about. Um, I'm an activist. I am an executive director of an AIDS organization. And I have a goddamn medal from the Queen of England, which is lovely. However, I had a, an, an issue, a health issue, and I was sent to see a, a specialist. And I went to this man's place and I was told to strip naked and put on one of those paper gowns, which I did. And then the doctor came in wearing double mask, double gloves, completely a head to toe cover with a visor over his face. And he stood on the other side of the room and then got one of those big, long wooden Q-tip things and poked me from about three feet away and then said, I'm sorry, I, I can't help you. We don't, we don't, I don't work with people like you. 
And in that moment, I wasn't an activist. I wasn't an executive director. I wasn't, um, I was just this naked, scared guy with a health issue who felt completely awful. He made me feel less than nothing. It was probably the lowest I'd felt in a long, long time about anything about my HIV. And it wasn't until I was getting dressed where I found my agency and I started to get mad. By the time I was fully dressed, I was in that wedding room and I started screaming and yelling at the doctor and yelling at the receptionist and had to call security to throw me out. It was terrible. But I found my agency. But in that moment, in that moment, he took me from who I was and just crushed me. It didn't last long, but it happened. Has anything similar to that ever happened to you where you've, you've had... You know, you've been going along in your life, everything's fine, but then someone does something around your HIV that, that reduces you momentarily or, or mm-hmm. at all. Well, I, I'm thankful that some of these experiences, that they, they haven't happened in person. I, just, I can't even imagine, like, your bravery in that situation, being able to stand up against that. Because I, I can't stand the people that just make you feel so less than human for being exactly mm-hmm. who you are. And, I mean, I, I have gotten that, but it, a lot of that's online. Because I guess I, I definitely grew up in the, the generation where now technology is more prevalent. For anyone that doesn't know already, HIV is plastered all over my bios everywhere. And you could easily look me up and it said, like, it would be like H- Ashley Murphy, HIV activist. And I, I, I just don't shy away from it. But there have been times when people have kind of like tried to like use it to bring me down. Like when I was, I'd say I was about 15 or 16. I was doing this radio interview. I was in Vancouver at the time, but these, this person was stationed in um, America. And, you know, we're just having a good chat, very open dialogue about HIV. Everything was going very well. But then after, as soon as I got off the radio show, I was like looking at my phone just to see, you know, did anyone live tweet? Was anyone talking about it? And then I just opened my phone to see, you know, a couple nice comments, met with a couple n- n- nasty ones. And I was looking at these people's profiles who were sending hate. And I just remember seeing like this one mom with her children. And I just remember feeling so upset, obviously like for myself for a second, because you know, obviously it hurt, but I was like, this this woman is spewing absolute garbage and hate to me while she's raising three young kids. And I was just thinking, I pray to God that these kids don't grow up and learn these values and treat people like their mom did. That was the first thing that came across my mind. But then the other person who was messaging me was saying rude things not only about me, but my birth mother. And my birth mother, she passed away when I was 12. And so I definitely took more offense to that just because, you know, like my mom didn't pass away from HIV, but also HIV wasn't something that defined either her or I. And they just said, you know, the reason like, like, because your mom had HIV, she was a disgusting human and you're disgusting and you don't deserve good things in life and all this stuff, just horrible things. And I was just sitting in my hotel room in Vancouver, like crying to my mom about this. But at the same time, I was like, why am I letting this bother me? Because at the end of the day, these were like older people who should have educated themselves, but they're using this opportunity to take time out of their day to write something to a 15, 16 year old who they don't even know. How pathetic is that? And then I was, <laughs> I was just like, why am I upset over this? I'm like, I really shouldn't be. I was like, what they said about my mom, that wasn't cool. That wasn't cool at all. But I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to like use this negativity and speak and make those people feel sorry. Even though they weren't going to see me speak because they're in the States and I was in Canada. 
but it was just like the, the, the feeling of like the power that I had over them in that moment. It, it went from a moment of like being really shattered to empowering. I was able to flip that switch really quickly, which I know a lot of people can't, but I have always tried as hard as it is to find the positive and all the negativity. Yeah. So then what's the best thing that HIV has done for your life? Because uh, I wouldn't have my career without HIV. I'm, I mean, yeah, I wouldn't have so much without my HIV status. And that's, that's the crazy thing. The first time someone ever asked me that question, you know, like, I'm, I'm sure you've been asked it too. If you could go back in time and not have your HIV status, would you? No. No. And people think it's so weird that I can just so easily just be like, no. And I've said no since I was a little kid. And the, the reason why is just like, I don't think I would have been, you know, as understanding of a person, as empathetic. Like, like I said, like growing up in the family that I did, I learned from a young age, you know, people have their issues, but also it's their differences. It's what makes them unique. And you shouldn't feel bad about any of that kind of stuff. And so, like, I just kind of didn't. But I'd say the best thing, probably my family. See, I would say the same thing, but not just my biological family, my chosen family. HIV gave me a whole second family mm -hmm. of, of people I work with, uh, play with, uh, who I adore. And you're one of those people, girl. I, mean, I adore you. But, uh, the feeling's I, mutual, I, don't worry. Thanks. I, I, uh, I can't imagine my life without people like you in it, you know? I, my whole life has been enriched by the, by the relationships I've made uh, through my work in HIV. We've now known each HIV. other for like 12 years, I think. 12 years. That's crazy when you think about it. I was just doing the math in my head. And I was like, wow, it really has been a long time since we've, we've both been doing it, but at such like different spectrums mm -hmm. and just different stages. Because there, there was for so long when I was younger, when I first heard about this long-term survivor thing, the, the way I saw it was that I wasn't a part of that group huh. or that people, that people didn't see me as part of that group either. But then when I realized that, you know, people didn't really like see the worth in young people who were speaking, it, it did kind of piss me off because I was like, I am a long-term survivor. What, 15, 16 years? Like, that's a long time. But it doesn't seem like a long time when you first think about it because, like, you look at a 15-year-old and you're like, oh, they're so young. You know what I mean? But it's like when you think about someone living with HIV for 15 years, you're like, that's such a long time. And then you compare the two and you're like, wait a second. You know what I mean? But, you know, any, however you slice it, 15 years, 20 years, 25, that's a long time. And, and add to that the fact that that, People will often look at their lives and go, oh, I've been positive almost as long as I've been negative. And you don't get to say that. You said, I've been positive since day one. Yeah. Right? I never had a choice in this issue. I was, I arrived in the world living with HIV. And, mm -hmm. and you are a long-term survivor and a long-term thriver. And you are a role model and you are the bomb. We, we, we both are. I, I actually want to ask you a question. I, go for it. I had someone ask me this a few weeks ago, like someone within the HIV community. They do, they're not HIV positive, but their family is. And they're, they're just kind of, they reached out to me and they're like, how did you start in all of this? Like, where did you, where did you find the courage to start speaking? Because I had the moment of like, I don't know. It was just something that like happened. You don't really think about, you know, this is going to lead me to here in this amount of years. You don't really think about that. But when you think about like where you are now and where you were, where where did you where did you get that strength to be able to speak to to be like I'm okay with it? For me, if you see injustice being done and you do nothing, then your sin is greater, um, in my opinion. And and so I cannot sit by and watch people be abused or, or mistreated. And 
uh, would I have the agency or the, or the ability to change that? No. Nah. So uh, it's never been about me initially. It's been about other people. And, and in, in helping other people is how I found my, my voice and, and my agency and was able to then you know, speak up for myself. Mm-hmm. It's much easier. And we see this actually in our, in our youth program. If you have a doctor that's not listening to you, sometimes your best friend will be, will be the best person to speak to that doctor, not you, right? Yeah. Because sometimes you're better at speaking up for others than you are for yourself. And I think that's where it began for me uh, in that helping other people came first. And then through that, I, I learned how to help myself. As you said, I wouldn't change anything. I wouldn't change uh, my status. It's definitely made me who I am today. I think it's made me a better person, less selfish than I was. I'm still pretty selfish as far as I'm concerned. But uh, but ultimately, I think um, I think I wouldn't change a thing. No, you, ju- you just want to help people. I, initially, I don't know where that even like came from. Like, I've always volunteered since I was like three. Like I think the first AIDS walk I ever went to, I was three years old, but I didn't realize it was an AIDS walk. I just remember that the shirt fit me like a dress. <laughs> but I'd just been doing this stuff for so long. And I guess once I finally realized what I was doing it for, it all just kind of made sense. I, I don't know, just that one thing just kind of led to another, which just kind of led to another. So being able yes. to kind of like go chronologically and be like, how did all this happen? I don't really know. The first thing we just kind of started with having HIV. Yeah, it just happened. It wow. Just went, it just happened. And I sort of followed it in the way we went. You guys, I hey. so hate to interrupt. This is... <laughs> I told you. To, I know. You need to interrupt for hours. <laughs> I know, right? But this was so much fun and so engaging. And I can't thank you enough. James, thank you. I really enjoyed this. this has been you awesome. obviously have much love for each other, which I appreciate. So I, I would like to ask you... Before we close, five, each of you, five rapid fire questions. And I will um, maybe, I'll ask you, Adrian, first, and then we'll close off with Ashley. These are just yes or no's. That's all you get, yes or no. Or you have to choose one or other. They're either or, I guess. So a month without a car or a month without internet, Adrian? A month without a car. Beloved or respected? Loved. Loose guidelines or clear directions? Loose guidelines every time. <laughs> Ability to pause time or rewind time? Probably pause. To live in that moment would be awesome. A pet pig or a pet goat? Both. <laughs> you can't give me one or the other. All right. I had a farm, dude. <laughs> oh, that's right. Both. Why not? Okay. Ashley, to you. A month without a car or a month without internet? Oh, a month without a car. I don't even drive. <laughs> well, Doesn't matter. Too easy. All right. <laughs> that was an easy one. <laughs> Beloved or respected? I'd say loved. Loose guidelines or clear directions? Uh clear. Ability to pause time or rewind time? Pause time. A pet pig or a pet goat? See, I want to say both too, but I can't. So um, <laughs> I'm gonna go with the goat. Goat. You can say both. Break the rules. Break the rules. Yeah, see, I don't even eat breakers. bacon. I don't, I don't really see a need. I mean, pigs are cute, but I mean, goats are cute too. Goats are cute. Well, thank you so much, both of you. I really appreciate the time you took with us today. This has been awesome. Thank you so much, James. Thank you, Adrian, for talking. It's been a blast. And Ashley, always a pleasure. Talk my ear off any day, please. That's it for us this month. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you'll join us next time on podcast. And if you have any comments or questions or ideas for new episodes, send me an email at podcastforyou at gmail.com. That's the number four and the letter U. 
PauseCast is produced by The Positive Effect, which is brought to you by ReachNexus at the MAP Center for Urban Health Solutions. The Positive Effect is a facts-based, lived experience movement powered by people living with HIV and can be visited online at positiveeffect.org. Technical production is provided by David Grine of the Acme Podcasting Company in Toronto.